It's a pleasure to be back with you today as we prepare to celebrate Christmas, just a couple short weeks away. As we do so, we find ourselves in a passage that we don't necessarily turn to immediately in this time of year. Oftentimes, we are accustomed to turning to passages like Isaiah 9, a passage we'll look at next week. For in Isaiah 9, we see that glorious message of hope, that glorious message of light. But in order to really appreciate that, to get our hearts in the right place, we have to understand the backdrop in which that promise was set. We have to understand how terrifying of times the people of God were experiencing. We all have experienced terror and darkness in our own lives, I trust. At least I have. As I thought through this last week of some of the scariest times I've experienced, the the one experience that will always stand out to me happened on a drive I was making with my wife, Jamie, about eight years ago. At the time, Jamie was about eight months pregnant with our daughter, Amelia. We were driving back to our old house in Colorado from a visit with friends in Oklahoma. And on that drive, we had already gone through some dicey weather, to put it lightly. We'd gone through some snow-packed roads, and it was late, and we were tired, but I was ready to be home, as no doubt you have experienced on any long drive. And by the grace of God, we found ourselves on the last leg of that drive, which typically took about an hour, on a little two-lane highway that connects Lyman, Colorado, to Colorado Springs. Some of you maybe have made that drive before. While we had driven through some snow already, And while there appeared to be some snow ahead, I was confident that we would be able to finish it off without any real difficulty. It wasn't long after turning onto that little highway, however, that I realized how horribly wrong I was in that assumption. For little did I know that after turning on that highway, we were actually headed into a blizzard. And very, very quickly, a somewhat dicey, wintry situation turned into a very dire situation. I could see absolutely nothing in this blizzard. Some of you perhaps have experienced that before. Outside of about a foot in front of our little CRV, we could see nothing. We could not see the road. I could not see the shoulder. There were no other cars on the road at the time, for the highway had actually been shut down shortly after we drove onto it. And I, I have to admit, I was terrified. Because I realized that in this moment, a decision I had made had not only put my own life at stake, but the life of of my wife, the life of my unborn daughter. I was entirely hopeless and panic-struck in that moment, driving about five miles an hour on a snow-packed road in pitch-black darkness. I prayed and I begged for God to deliver us from that moment. And after driving that situation for about two hours... I suddenly saw something that I in no way had had anticipated seeing. I saw another vehicle, not just any vehicle. I saw a FedEx truck lit up more brightly than anything I have ever seen on the road before or since. At the time, I had no understanding how I could have possibly caught up with another vehicle, seeing as the highway was closed. I had no idea how we could have caught up, seeing as how we were driving maybe five, ten miles an hour at max. But all I knew in that moment was that the lights of that FedEx truck were the most beautiful thing I had ever beheld. Not because the vehicle itself was beautiful, but because those lights meant my safety. They meant that I had this large vehicle that I could could now follow closely behind, a vehicle that would help me ensure that I stayed on the road, a vehicle that ultimately helped lead us into the next small town, Selma, where my wife and I were, by the grace of God, able to get the last hotel room available this little seedy Econo Lodge. As I laid on the bed in that Econo Lodge that night, with the wind still howling outside, 
I knew I would never forget that night. I knew I'd never forget the sight of those lights. Because I knew in my heart that, that apart from those lights, we were doomed. There was no way I was going to be able to drive another two hours by myself in pitch black darkness. But by the grace of God, he provided that vehicle. And he protected me and my family. I tell that story because as we enter into a series of Christmas, or as we enter into the season of Christmas, we of course enter into a season that is in many ways characterized by light. We put Christmas lights up on our tree, we put lights up on our house, we spend time driving around at night with our family and friends and loved ones looking at lights. And we as a nation take a step back in this time to appreciate the beauty of that light. And as believers, we appreciate it of course only knowing that It is a representation of that greater light of Christ. It's a beautiful and precious season. And yet as beautiful as those lights are, as precious as the season is, we all must understand that its beauty, its majesty, can only be properly appreciated when we see it against the backdrop of the darkness of the world. When we understand just how dark and hopeless the world was apart from that light, when we understand that we ourselves are desperately lost in the darkness, apart from that light. And so as to help put uh, us in that right mindset, this morning, we explore not the light of Isaiah 9, but we explore the, the darkness of Isaiah 8. And as we do so, my prayer is that we might really grasp just how dark things are apart from God, just how hopeless and outright terrifying a world we live in. As we explore that darkness, we will see the panicked responses of God's people that still relate to our own panicked responses today. And yet in the midst of that darkness and in the midst of that panic, we will be given a glimpse of that little light that remained, that little light that persisted, that ray of hope that God provided for Isaiah and he still provides for us today. As we prepare to do that and as we dig into that darkness, let me again open us up in prayer and we'll get started. Father in heaven, we thank you for this morning. And God, in this joyous season, it perhaps feels a little strange to examine such a dark and depressing topic. But God, it is only when we understand this darkness that we can appreciate the light of the gospel. God, might we never be so ignorant and naive to assume that this darkness has been completely removed already. Might we never be so blind to understand that we live in a world that still suffers very much in darkness, as Andy already prayed. But God, might our response to that darkness not be the panic, the world in which we live, might it not be fear, might it not be folly, but might that darkness only point us further and further towards your light, a light that comes from your word and a light that ultimately emanates from your son, Jesus Christ. God, we eagerly anticipate celebrating his birth. But as we prepare to celebrate that birth, God, might you use this time this morning to draw us into that dark moment, to show us how hopeless we are apart from you. As always, my prayer for unbelievers here this morning is for their salvation. I pray that you expose the darkness of their soul. I pray that you show them that they are dead and apart from you, they are headed to hell. But I pray they see a glimpse of light in this passage this morning. I pray they see your offer of love is found in Jesus Christ, and I pray that you save them. For my brothers and sisters in Christ, might this morning be a a time in which we are able to ultimately rejoice in you, but might it also be a reminder of just how grateful we ought to be daily, for we too were once lost and wandering in the darkness, headed for destruction. 
and we're rescued not by our own deeds, but by your light that you sent to us in your son Jesus. Cause us to be grateful for that more this morning, God. We pray. It's in Jesus Christ's name we ask all these things. Amen. Well, as we begin our time in our passage this morning, we begin truly in a context of of panic, in a context of darkness. That darkness comes up immediately in verse 11 where we read this. In Isaiah 8, 11, For thus the Lord spoke to me with mighty power and instructed me not to walk in the way of the people, saying, You are not to say it is conspiracy in regard to all the people call a conspiracy, and you are not to fear what they fear or be in dread of it. As Andy already read this passage this morning, you are hopefully already aware of just how chaotic of a scene we enter into in Isaiah chapter 8. We enter into a scene that is full of terror, that is full of confusion, that is best characterized by darkness. But in order to appreciate the feeling of that context, we have to take a step back out of Isaiah 8 and understand what that unavoidable darkness was, what it must have felt like to the people of God, for they indeed faced an incredibly dark reality. Now, if you were to take a trip back in time into the days of Isaiah the prophet, prophet who began his ministry in the southern kingdom of Judah around 742 B.C. And if you were to ask the people to whom Isaiah ministered, what is your greatest fear, people of Judah? What is casting its shadow upon your happiness? The people of God there in Judah likely would have pointed to two sources of their darkness. Both sources were sources of, of war, of potential destruction. The first source of darkness was no doubt that darkness next door to the north. It was darkness posed by their Israelite brothers and sisters. Now that identity may be somewhat confusing to some of you for throughout much of the Old Testament, the people of Israel and Judah are really one people. But it's important to realize that at this point in time in the history of God's people, they have been split into two nations, Israel to the north, Judah in the south. And at this particular juncture in history, the people of Israel had joined forces with a few other smaller nations, people like Damascus. They did this to stand up against other threats that were headed headed their way from the east, a threat we'll speak of here in a moment. But despite that newfound coalition, despite that newfound political alliance, the people of Judah remained independent. They refused to enter into this agreement between Israel and other northern neighbors. And as a result, Israel had now turned their attention to Judah in the south, and they were threatening an attack. You can read the effect that this attack had on the people of God, Ahaz and others in Judah, if you just look back in Isaiah chapter 7. For in Isaiah 7, we read of the effects this political alliance had on people in Judah. In Isaiah 7 verse 1, We read, it came about in the days of Ahaz, that is the king who ruled during the days of Isaiah 8, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, the king of Judah, that Rezin, the king of Aram, and Tekah, the son of Ramalia, king of Israel, went up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not conquer it. When it was reported to the house of David, saying the Arameans have camped in Ephraim, his heart and the hearts of the people shook as the trees of the forest shake with the wind. Here in these few verses, you're given a brief window into the political context of life in Jerusalem during this day. Life that consisted of a constant threat from Israel and other nations. And while they were not yet successful, it appeared that they were joining forces with a few other political forces in the realm. 
And as a result, all things looked hopeless. For Ahaz and others, they assumed that Jerusalem was no doubt about to fall. And so if you are living in Jerusalem, as a, a, a person who strives to follow God, if you're living in that city and you look to your north towards Israel and you see this imminent threat of war, you no doubt will feel intimidated. You will undoubtedly be scared. Yet as scared as Israel must have made some of those people in Judah, the far greater threat and really the far darker shadow that had begun to encroach upon the territory of Judah was not from Israel and certainly not from Damascus. The far darker threat against Judah and all the people of that ancient Near Eastern culture was the shadow cast by the giant Assyrian Empire to the east. And that empire was an empire that was by all means terrifying to every single man, woman, and child in that ancient world. For it was an empire that was on the move. It was an empire that appeared to be impenetrable, untouchable. They appeared, by most historians' accounts, as almost superhuman in their strength and their might. The terror that they struck in the hearts of their enemies in large part was connected to the Assyrian technological abilities. That is to say, the Assyrian uh, army was, was by far the most advanced army in the history of the world up to that point in time. They were literally changing the way wars were fought. They did this by the fact that they used stronger weapons than everyone else. That is, they used iron, while other people used bronze. It was due to the fact that the Assyrian army was almost entirely on horseback, where most armies walked on the land, you know, on their feet, a bit slower than horseback riding. Not only that, but the Assyrian army was, was the first professional army in the ancient world. That might not sound that significant to you and me, but when you consider that all these other ar armies, including in Judah and Israel were consisted of, of part-time soldiers, soldiers that could only fight during some months of the year because, well, they were farmers back home, and so when farming season came up, they needed to go back home. When you consider that was the way of war back then, and you compare that to the Assyrian army that could just camp outside your front door year-round, you understand why it would be so hard to fight them. For the Assyrians only had to just wait you out. They knew they could obliterate your society if they just gave it a little time. They had the help of their weapons. They had the help of a professional army. They had the help of engineers, people whose entire profession was to figure out how to cut off all food supplies from your hometown. They were smarter. They were faster. They were more advanced than you were. Thus, you can understand how dark of a shadow they cast. Yet as terrifying as that imagery was, the terror really isn't just represented in their military might. That'd be bad enough. No, to really appreciate how terrifying the Assyrian army was, you have to also understand the reputation they built up for themselves when it came to their treatment of their enemies. For unlike some other ancient empires that maybe treated their people or people under the control with, it, with somewhat respect, the Assyrians were no respecter of, of boundaries. When the Assyrians came into play and came into battle, your best hope was deportation. That was the ideal situation that you would be drug out of your home and cast into some other land you don't know. That's the best case scenario. The reality, however, was much darker for most people. For the Assyrians were famous for torture, for sheer brutality in their treatment of others. And due to the fact that there are a number of young ears in our audience this morning, 
We don't need to delve into some of those details, but needless to say, if you just Google this, you can see why people were terrified of an army famous for amputations, famous for skinning, famous for a lot of other horrific activities they would take part in, activities that they would memorialize by commissioning artists who would paint a picture of the torture and would hang it in the homes of Assyrians and would say, ah, remember when we did this? Remember when we tortured this nation? What, what a great memory of our people. These were the images that you associated with Assyria. These were the things that the Assyrian Empire was well known, and it was this empire that was headed now in the direction of Judah. And so when you read throughout the Old Testament and you read of, of accounts of what these armies must have feared of, you can, uh, you can understand why it would have struck such terror in the hearts. I mean, turn back, if you will, to Isaiah 5, and you see one of these brief pictures of this Assyrian army. Isaiah chapter 5, verse 26, the prophet says this about that approaching army. He will also lift up a standard to the distant nation, that is Assyria, and will whistle for it from the ends of the earth, and behold, it will come with speed swiftly. No one in it is weary or stumbles. None slumbers or sleeps, nor is the belt at its waist undone, nor its sandal strap broken. Its arrows are sharp and all its bows are bent. The hoofs of its horses seem like flint and its chariot wheels like a whirlwind. Its roaring is like the lioness and it roars like young lions. It growls as it seizes the prey and carries it off with no one to deliver it. It will growl over it in that day like a roaring of the sea. If one looks to the land, behold, there is darkness and distress. Even light is darkened by its clouds." Suffice it to say, if you were to ask a person living in Judah in the days of Isaiah, and you were to say, tell me, what's, what's stressing you out these days? They would have some pretty good answers. It wouldn't just be, well, you know, finances are a little tight. It wouldn't just be, oh, you know, Junior just isn't behaving like he used to. It's, oh, you know, our former brothers and sisters in Israel want to kill us. And if they don't succeed, there's that massive empire to the east that will destroy and obliterate everyone. Besides that, I don't know, nothing's really going on. And they lived in a politically bleak and dark reality. For they lived in a time in which it seemed to be ruled by chaos. A day in which the most vicious and godless people they could imagine had the wealth of the world in their pockets, had enough power to dominate anyone and everyone who stood in their way. When you live in that dark of a world, it's, it's understandable why things would look bleak, why things would look hopeless. It's hard to appreciate fully the magnitude of the terror they must have felt. And yet we understand that while this was a unique moment in history, it was, it was far from entirely unique from the experience of God's people throughout the word, right? The people of God lived in a violent time in the Old Testament. When it was not the Assyrians, there were a number of other ancient empires on the rise. Always, Israel was always a small people group. There was always the reality of, of a threat on the horizon. There was always a shadow cast by some empire slowly encroaching into their territory. Even when you get into the days of the New Testament, when Jesus Christ was born, things were no brighter at that time. The people of God still had their land, but they lived, they lived under Roman rule. 
Again, pagan, godless rule, rule that would have seemed impenetrable, impossible to even challenge. The people of the New Testament then also would have understood the reality of darkness in the world. They would have understood how hopeless things would seem when left to their own uses, when left to their own abilities. And while this darkness was real in their own days, it it remains real for us as well. I don't want to shrug off the reality of struggles in our own lives. While we do not have the actual Assyrian Empire bearing down on us, we all have real struggles, don't we? And we live in a world that seems bleak at best. We've come through a brutal couple of years in our nation and throughout the world. A time period in which many of us have been deeply divided against people we would formerly call friends. Deeply divided with our own families. We have lost loved ones due to the virus, but just we've lost loved ones in general. Some of you have lost ones recently. We have suffered job loss. We have suffered some financial ruin. We have suffered through the many difficulties that inevitably come in this life, whether that be relationally, financially, or even as we've seen this last week when it comes to natural disasters. We see darkness still all around us. And in the midst of that darkness... It is easy to feel as if our greatest struggle is unavoidable, as if our greatest struggle is all that darkness out there. And it's true that there is a lot of darkness out there. Just as it was true there was a lot of darkness outside the borders of Judah. But we must understand about this unavoidable darkness as it's exposed in Isaiah and as it's exposed throughout the the rest of Scripture, is that the, the real danger of darkness That is to say that the greater threat of darkness is never all those intimidating factors out there. The greater darkness is always inside. That's always the darkness. That's always the evil that God is far more concerned about when it comes to his people, when it comes to all of us. And it's that darkness that the people of God in Judah were failing to really appreciate, were failing to rightly tremble before. But if you read through the pages of Isaiah, even the first seven chapters, you'll see it's that darkness that God is more concerned about with his people. For long before the Assyrians arrived at their doorstep, the practices of Assyria were embraced. They were practiced. You can see a number of depictions of that inner darkness, of that sin, throughout the early chapters of Isaiah, but just turn back with me, if you will, to Isaiah chapter 1. Isaiah chapter 1, verses 21 through 23, we have one of these brief depictions of that inner darkness. They're speaking of Jerusalem, speaking of his people. God says, How the faithful city has become a harlot, she who was full of justice. Righteousness once lodged in her, but now murderers. Your silver has become like dross, your drink diluted with water. Your rulers are rebels and companions of thieves. Everyone loves a bribe and chases after rewards. They do not defend the orphan, nor does the widow's plea come before them. Turn over a page to Isaiah chapter 2, beginning in verse 5. You see a similar depiction. There the prophet says, Come, house of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord, for you have abandoned your people, the house of Jacob, because they are filled with influences from the east. They are soothsayers like the Philistines. They strike bargains with the children of foreigners. Their land has been filled with silver and gold. There is no end to their treasures. Their land has also been filled with horses. There is no end to their chariots. Their land has been filled with idols. They worship the work of their hands, that which their fingers have made. Here you see the real deception of darkness. 
It's a deception that tells you that things are light, things are good, as long as life is comfortable. You see, before the threat of Assyria really entered the minds of Judah, they could have easily assumed that God was on their side. And why? Because their bank accounts were full. Because they were financially successful. Because they looked like the other nations, which meant they looked wealthy. What they did not understand, however, is that with that wealth, they brought in idolatry. They brought in wicked practices. What they did not understand was that long before the shadow of Assyria encroached upon their land, that shadow of wickedness was already within their own hearts. And it was because of that darkness that God's wrath was coming. It was because of that sin that they were divided against God. Now, it was because of that practice that things now suddenly became so unpredictable, so fearful. It's an important thing for us to remember. For again, when we take a step back and talk about things that stress us out, when we talk about the greatest threat to us, or let's just put it in our own context, the greatest threat to the American church is, and so often we are quick to say, is them. The threat to us is out there. It's those awful things that they are doing. When in reality, the greatest threat is always the sin we're already dealing with. It's the hypocrisy that we so easily allow into our own hearts. It's the division that we allow to to be at work in us long before the world has any influence. As we see throughout all of Scripture, the reason why people go to hell is not because of some political faction. They go to hell because their heart hates God. That is what we're judged for. That was the darkness that had crept into the land of Judah. And it's the same unavoidable darkness that marks so much of humanity today. As we enter into Isaiah 8 then, what we see is truly a context that, that for many outside observers is, is pretty hopeless, isn't it? It's, it's the threat of an Assyrian empire. It's the threat of a people that have turned against their own God. It's the reality of a world that seems hopelessly lost and confused. But as we continue to consider this darkness, we see it just gets worse. For in the midst of that unavoidable darkness, in response to it, we see the people of God's panicked response. A panic that ultimately God is addressing here in Isaiah chapter 8, verses 11 through 22. As we looked at the panic response, I want us to see two particular responses that God highlights. Responses that were common in Isaiah's day and responses that still remain equally common and treacherous today. We begin with the first broad response of the fear of man. Read with me again in Isaiah chapter 8. Verses 11 through 15. There we find these words. The Lord spoke to me with a mighty power and instructed me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, You are not to say it's a conspiracy. In regard to all this people, call a conspiracy. You are not to fear what they fear or be in dread of it. It's the Lord of hosts whom you should regard as holy. He shall be your fear. He shall be your dread. Then he shall become a sanctuary. But to both the houses of Israel... A stone to strike and a rock to stumble over. A snare and a trap for the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Many will stumble over them. Then they will fall and be broken. They will even be snared and caught. As God speaks to Isaiah, and as he warns them about falling into the patterns of behavior that characterize the behavior of those in Judah, he begins by hitting on that one very common response that so many people have in response to darkness in response to threats that response is a fear of man 
For it's clear that as the people of Judah observed the world around them, they got caught up in this obsession that is described in verse 12, this obsession of, of calling out conspiracies, calling out what I think is, is better translated alliances, political coalitions that other people are forming. And again, from the perspective of, of people suffering in Jerusalem, you can quickly relate, I think, to what they're going through, can't you? For you are hearing just rumors of wars, rumors of new coalitions that threaten your safety, that threaten your family, that threaten your home. It was bad enough for Israel to team up with Damascus, but as we read earlier in Isaiah chapter 7, there's also this threat of the Arameans, there's the threat of, of other people. Are they in alliance with them now too? Oh man, if they're in alliance, how, how could we ever stop them? If they're in alliance, what will we possibly respond with? They fear these temporary rulers. And of course, the folly in this fear is they ignore the ruler of all creation. They fear pawns in this game of chess that God is playing. They fear these minor players in the much grander narrative that God is writing. And in their fear, they're blind to that greater revelation, to that greater picture. For as God says through Isaiah in chapter 12, or chapter 8, verse 13, it's the Lord of hosts whom you should regard as holy. It is God who you must fear. In response to difficult circumstances, humanity is always prone to fear that which feels like the most imminent threat. When it's the threat of war, they fear the person that is bringing the war. And when it's a fear revolving around finances, their, their fear revolves around their employer, their fear revolves around their relationships that can dictate that success and that failure. When it's a fear of a failing marriage, again, the fear is wrapped up more in the spouse. The fear is wrapped up in one's own personal struggles. In all these examples and many others, the folly of fearing man is always caught up in the fact that man is finite. Man can only do so much to you. And so to be ruled by a fear of people is so utterly short-sighted, it is foolish. Jesus Christ hits on this reality Famously in Matthew. Look with me, if you will, to Matthew chapter 10. Jesus has some very strong words about who we ought to fear and why. In Matthew chapter 10, in the midst of his discussion about the meaning of discipleship, what it looks like to be devoted to Christ and Christ alone, Jesus offers these words in Matthew 10, beginning in verse 26. Therefore, do not fear them, for there is nothing concealed that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the darkness, speak in the light. What you hear whispered in ear, proclaim it upon the housetops. Here's the key. Do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul. Rather, fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. It's hard to get more blunt than that, isn't it? Because the ability of man is pretty intimidating in this verse. For Jesus doesn't say, don't fear man who might just tease you. That's hard enough. Don't fear man because he might fire you from your job. That's bad enough. Don't fear man because the worst they can do is kill you. That's, that's a pretty big deal, Jesus. But what's his point? They can kill you, but that's the end. They can't touch your soul. God can God can physically take your life and God can damn you for all eternity. 
God can do this because he is the eternal judge. He is the ruler over everything. So to fear someone who, whose end result will be buried in the ground just like your own, it's utterly short-sighted, foolish to fear man over God. And yet, so frequently the people of God do this. So frequently we do this, don't we? We look at the world around us. And even those of us who, who profess a belief in the ultimate sovereignty of God, something we declare very clearly here at the chapel, that is to say the belief that God controls everything, something I think the Bible makes abundantly clear, even those of us who declare that when things seem to go off the rails, what do we assume? Well, we assume that. They've gone off the rails. We assume that, that God perhaps can no longer be trusted, that God doesn't have control of the situation. And so we allow the darkness to envelop us. We allow ourselves to, be con- to become confused. We allow ourselves to be ruled by fear. And that fear left in its own right is, is dangerous enough, but as it's lived out, as we see back in Isaiah 8, it becomes downright foolish. That brings us to the second panicked response of the people of God. That second panicked response is not just the fear of man, but, but the trust of man. The trust of man's word. We read this bizarre practice that the people of God had turned to in their moment of darkness. A practice that's depicted in verses 19 through 20. There we read. When they say to you, that is when these people in Judah say to you, consult the mediums and the spiritists who whisper and mutter. Should not a people consult their God? Should they consult the dead on behalf of the living? To the law and to the testimony, if they do not speak according to the word, it's because they have no dawn. As Israel speaks of the, this climate in Judah, and as he speaks and describes of how these people are acting in fear, he speaks to this very bizarre practice, or at least bizarre to us, this practice of consulting the dead. This idea of, well, we're confused, but maybe we can talk to someone who can speak to the dead, they can speak to the spirit realm, and maybe they can give us a little bit of light. Maybe they can give us a little bit of hope. This is a practice that seems bizarre to us, and it ought to seem bizarre, because biblically it is utterly sinful, very clearly prohibited by the law of God. You can read about it in passages like Deuteronomy 18, in which the people of God are told, don't do this, other nations do this, but you cannot do this. And yet, despite the fact that it is so clearly prohibited by God, it was a practice that the people of God continue to fall into. And in trying to ask why they would do this, I think it helps to consult one of the most famous examples of this in Scripture. That famous example coming, as some of you already know, in the story of King Saul. For King Saul, in his folly, falls into the same pattern, falls into the same behavior, but as he does so, he gives us this great picture of why people would ever do this. In this picture, I think it's easier for us to relate to it. For back in 1 Samuel chapter 28, you see that King Saul is in a very difficult position. At this point in time, Samuel, that godly leader before him, had died. Therefore, there was no direct voice of God to, to consult and Saul is facing a very difficult military situation in which he needs the guidance of God. We find what happens in 1 Samuel chapter 28, beginning in verse 3. There we read, Samuel was dead, 
And all Israel had lamented him and buried him in Ramah in his own city. Saul had removed him from the land and who's, uh, from the land those who's, who were mediums and spiritists. So Philistines gathered together and came and camped in Shunem. And Saul gathered all of Israel together and camped in Gilboa. When Saul saw the camp of the Philistines, he was afraid and his heart trembled greatly. When Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams or by Yermer or the prophets. Then Saul said to his servants, Seek for me a woman who is a medium that I may go to her and inquire of her. And his servants then said, Behold, there is a woman who is a medium at Endor. And as the story progresses, we see Saul um, getting the word from Samuel. This passage, I think, is so helpful to us because it shows how easily justifiable an activity like this is, doesn't it? I mean, look what Saul got right before consulting the dead. Saul had, in accordance with the word, helped remove mediums. He had removed these people who supposedly could speak to the dead. That's great. That's obedience. Not only that, but when it came time to war, who did Saul first go to? Well, God. He prayed that God would give guidance. He prayed that God would give direction. But as he awaited to hear that direction from God, he realized that the Philistines weren't going anywhere. The threat wasn't going anywhere. And where was God in all of this? He's silent. And so with the lack of God's spoken word to him, with the lack of Samuel speaking to him, Saul does exactly what people in that day and age would have done. He says, okay, well, I got no other choice. Let's go consult that medium. Let's go consult a a necromancer, someone who supposedly can consult the dead, who then chirp and mutter and give you this secret message of prophecy. The reason why the people of Judah did this then is the same reason why the people of God always turn back to that which is ultimately wicked. They did it out of fear. And they did it because, well, this is what the world does. This is what makes sense. And in so doing, the people of Judah were not the first and certainly not the last to trust in the word of man, to consult that which is utterly ridiculous. You see the same temptation fallen into by the Israelites throughout the, the Old Testament. You get in the New Testament and you see the people of God continually returning back to that which they know is wrong. And you find this warning time and time again in the New Testament, this warning of, of why are you going back to that which you know is, is faithless, that which you know is shameful. There are numerous books in the New Testament that speak to this, but one of the most famous examples is in the letter to the Galatians. As Paul writes to the Galatian believers, he's he's warning them against this idea of returning to the law, that is returning to works of the flesh as a means of, of justification. And time and time again, he's reminding these believers, you had the gospel, you know Christ, why would you turn back to that which is dead? That which only brought you shame, that which only brought you frustration. And you read this throughout his letter to the Galatians. And you find in passages like Galatians chapter 5, verse 13, you were called to freedom, brethren. Do not turn freedom into an opportunity of the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word in the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, take care that you not consume one another. Time and time again, Paul reminds his believers that they had been running so well, they had served God, and yet suddenly they were beginning to look more and more like the world around them. Why would the people of God do that? Why would people in a church be so foolish as to to drift slowly away from the gospel, to gradually look and sound less and less like Christ and more and more like the world from which they were saved? 
And we can imagine why anyone would be so foolish as to let that happen. Can you imagine a believer being so foolish as, as readopting practices that are more common in the lives of unbelievers than believers? Of course you can, because we all do it. Every single one of us. We do particularly when times get tough, don't we? We are quick to praise God in times of light and times of, of comfort. But brothers and sisters, how do you respond when times get difficult? When suddenly it seems like God is silent. When, when serving God does not bring that immediate gratification that it once brought you. Well, how many sinful behaviors so, can we so quickly justify in those moments? You speak to someone in a struggling marriage. And they may strive to honor God in that marriage for a little while, but, but over time, as they get increasingly lonely, as they struggle, suddenly they can justify adulterous temptations. Suddenly they can justify pursuing someone else out of sin. And we see this in the workplace. When we are a good employee, one that is honoring to God, one that is honest, and as long as we get those promotions, we, we think all is well, but when that promotion doesn't come, when we're threatened to lose our job, suddenly we can justify backbiting, dividing, speaking horribly of others at your office so as to build yourself up. We see this when it comes to childhood experiences, don't we? And it's one thing to obey your parents and submit to your parents when they're giving everything you want. Oh, but all of you remember how hard it is to obey your parents when suddenly they say no to something. And suddenly you can justify that, which is blatantly sinful. And that same example, of course, can be carried over to any realm of submission in our life, can't it? It's easy to submit to that which God calls you to submit to until things get hard. And then suddenly we can sound just as divisive, just as cruel, just as unkind, just as foul as any unsafe person out there. And we justify it because in our panic, we fail to, to understand what we're doing. We lose sight of that greater story. Without realizing, we've allowed ourselves to be sucked back into the darkness of this world and we're acting as if we have no other choice but to do that which is sinful. This is exactly what the people of God did in Judah. They did it because of the threat of Israel, because of the threat of Assyria. We do it because of the threat of family pressures, because of the threat of financial strain, because of the political frustrations. We all have our reasons. Every generation has a good reason to adopt the darkness. But from an eternal perspective, it is just as utterly foolish and short-sighted and wicked today as it was in the days of Judah. But of course, we say that. And even as we see the inevitable results of these activities, results that are depicted in verses 21 through 22 of Isaiah 8, those results of being famished, those results of being hungry, those results of only further distress, further darkness, further gloom, and further anguish, even amidst those results, we can feel confused. And we can feel hopeless. And we can feel as if there is no escaping this moment of darkness. If you take a step back and look at the world around us, you certainly see this hopelessness in the faces of so many, don't you? There's so many people who each year are determined to make this year better. Things are going to be better. Things are going to go right. And, and they, they'll put in the practice, they'll put in some effort, but as soon as things go bad, they're just that much more frustrated than they were before. 
And we understand that frustration. We can understand that turmoil because we ourselves have found ourselves in that moment. And in the midst of that moment, in the midst of that darkness, it's easy to maybe sarcastically and cynically ask, well, who on earth could possibly, in the midst of that darkness, find any hope? If the darkness is unavoidable, and it is, and if the darkness will induce panic, and it does, well, how in the world, how in the world can you maintain sanity? Much less joy or hope, who on earth would be so foolish and naive to think that there is any joy, any light to be found in such a dark place? It's a good question to ask, and I think I would I would suggest it's only when you ask that question that you can appreciate the shock of the light that is found in part in Isaiah 8 and a fool in Isaiah 9. For despite how dark things were, despite how hopeless things appeared, despite the fact that it would appear as if no one could possibly maintain hope in this, there is, in the midst of this darkness, the prophet Isaiah. This one prophet who appears to understand everything as it's happening, or at least understands enough to maintain that sanity, to maintain focus and devotion to God. And as we look at Isaiah, we see that final point, that ray of hope, first in part in the life of Isaiah, but ultimately that which was promised in the future. The present light that Isaiah himself had that gave him hope was the light that is bound up in that which he refers to as the testimony, as the law. We see Isaiah's devotion to that partial light a couple of times in this passage, beginning in Isaiah chapter 8, verse 16. In response to all the chaos and panic around him, Isaiah says this, Bind up the testimony, seal the law amongst my disciples, and I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob. I will even look eagerly for him. Later on, speaking of those people that are seeking out necromancers and doing that which is wicked, Isaiah says this in Isaiah chapter 8, verse 20. To the law, to the law and to the testimony, if they do not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. What is the light that is giving Isaiah comfort? What is the light that, that Isaiah is using as, as a guidance during this time of darkness? Well, it's the light of that word that God has already given him, isn't it? It's the light of the law. The light of God's word given to Isaiah here and elsewhere in the Old Testament. And at first glance, this might seem a little naive. Isaiah is looking down the barrel of a gun. How can a few laws in Leviticus help him out? Right? And yet we see immediately how much light that that law is already given him. For what does he say already in verses 12 through 15? He, he speaks of the goodness of God. He speaks of the fact that God is his refuge. How does he know that? Well, because the law already told him. Because he knows the history of God's people. And so while that light might be minuscule, might, might, while it might just be a singular beam, a singular ray of light, it's enough to remind him who God is. Because of the law, Isaiah knows God is good. Because of the law of God, he knows that, that God is, is faithful to his people. Because of the law, he knows that God is, is more powerful than anyone and everyone else. Because of the law, he knows what God expects from his people. 
He knows exactly what the will of God looks like in this moment, even if it's a will that he lives out minor step by minor step by minor step walking forward. He can walk forward with confidence because he knows exactly what God expects of him. This is such an important reminder for us, this sufficient present light, for ultimately is that which, which we proclaim ourselves, isn't it? We don't quote Isaiah when we say this. We quote passages like 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. A passage many of you may have memorized. What does that passage tell us about the word of God? It tells us it's sufficient for all things. The word of God is infallible. It is breathed out by God and it's all that we need for the sake of, of development and our discipleship. It's sufficient to correct us, to rebuke us, to train us in the ways of righteousness. We quote passages like this, but let's face it, when we come into real life problems, we are, quickly to, we are quick to throw it by the wayside. We're quick to treat the Bible as if it's, it's nice to, to read and quote on Sunday morning, but when it comes to getting the job I want or being a better spouse, let's face it, it's not that practical. But the reality is it is practical. It is sufficient for those basic everyday needs. If we know that word, we can know the will of God. And if we know the will of God, we know how we are to live. Isaiah was determined to live out that will of God. He was determined to wait on God, even unlike King Saul, even when God seemed hidden. Even when God seemed silent, Isaiah was set. Isaiah was determined, and he was determined because he had that one ray of hope before him. It was a soft light, no doubt. It gave off just the smallest amount of direction in such a dark time. But it was enough to give Isaiah that momentary hope that then kept him his sights forward, not just to that present light, but to that promise that he's ultimately looking ahead to. That promise not to just a passing light in the word, but the glorious light of God himself, the glory of God he knew would be revealed, and he knew would be revealed through these various signs that God gave him. As bizarre as it is, in the midst of his waiting, he speaks of that future hope. Verse 17 and 18, he says, I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob. I will even look eagerly for him. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are for signs and wonders in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. Isaiah is able to to focus on the future, to look for that distant beacon of light over the horizon. And as he does so, he, he cannot fully know what that light will be. He cannot know what this king will look like, although we're given a a brief depiction in Isaiah 9. But he knows about these signs of children that God has already given him. Children that we do not have time to explore, but in Isaiah 7 and 8, you have these various names that come up. Names that speak to the remnant that will survive in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 3. Uh, Children whose whose names speak to judgment and how quick it will come in Isaiah 8, 3 through 5. But most importantly, a child of the future whose name will be Emmanuel. This future child, this future sign. A sign that speaks of a child that is somehow greater than Assyria. A child who is great enough to overcome the darkest of moments. A child who we'll see next week is able to bring worldwide peace. That is ultimately the light of Christmas. It is ultimately the light we see in Christ, but it's a light that Isaiah could not yet understand. But what could Isaiah know? He knew what God had already revealed. He knew the sufficient light of the word. He knew of God's goodness, he knew of his faithfulness, and he therefore understood that the only true response of the people of God is not an ignorance 
of the darkness. Nor is it an adoption of the darkness. It's a steadfast march through the darkest of valleys, knowing full well that glorious light lies on the other side. That is the promise of Christmas. That is the light that brings life to all men. And it is that light that we all must ultimately look forward as believers. And so as we consider all of this, for those of you who are unbelievers, again, I I pray, as, as I say so often, it might seem strange, I pray the darkness overwhelms you today. I pray you feel hopeless. I pray you understand that the pain that is in your heart is not pain that can ever be healed by anything this world offers you. I pray that you understand that left to your own devices, you will just dwell in darkness for all eternity, which means you will dwell under the wrath of God. And I pray this, not so that you might suffer now, but that so in seeing that darkness around you, the glorious light of the gospel might shine in a way it's never shown before. I pray, unbeliever, that you see in Christ your only hope of deliverance. Because he is your only hope of deliverance. Unbeliever, please, I beg you today, consider the offer of light in Christ. Confess your sins before him. Place your trust in him, understanding that he and he alone is your deliverance. And as always, if you have questions, please let me know. For my fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, let us take this moment to to acknowledge the darkness of the world around us. Let us not be so quick to just shrug it off and pretend that this world is great, that everything is going great, that everything is full of light, because it's just not. The world is difficult. But in that darkness, let us not become panicked. Let's remember where our refuge is. And as we take that refuge, might we not cast shame upon the world that continues to seek refuge elsewhere. Let us call them in to join us in that refuge in Christ. And as we do that, as we seek out Christ, might we remember that as dark as this world is, the darkness is passing. That the sun has come, and that his light will soon be seen throughout all of creation. Someday we will see a light that eclipses all darkness, and that light will be the most beautifully glorious moment that we've ever experienced, and we will experience it for all eternity. Let us pray that happens today. Let me close in prayer. Father in heaven, it is easy to become overwhelmed by the darkness in this world. And I confess in my own life, it's easy to become panicked. But God, might we not be panicked like the world around us is panicked. Might we be steadfast, not because of our own confidence, of our own abilities, but because of your revealed word, and more importantly, because of, the, of your son, who has revealed you to us, God. Father, as we prepare to celebrate Christmas, might we do so with an appropriate appreciation, knowing that apart from your son, we are all hopeless and destined to live in darkness for all eternity, God. But I pray that all of us might be able to celebrate it right. Might we be able to celebrate it knowing you, and might we do it all in glorious anticipation of the day in which we will see your son face to face. Jesus, we pray that happens today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.